Modern smartphones are sleek and thin, but they're also fragile and expensive. If you're really careful, you may use it until you're ready to upgrade without shattering the glass. But if you look around, you'll see most phones wrapped in a case for protection. Our personal data is even more valuable than the device it's stored on, and it deserves just as much protection. The work that I do requires me to travel a lot, which means I'm frequently to connect, connected to unfamiliar networks. Nefarious hackers can make up to $1,000 selling the data of each of their victims on the dark web, and there are cheap hardware and software tools readily available that let even a smart middle schooler snatch your data without you even noticing. A virtual private network, or VPN, like ExpressVPN, creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your devices and the servers that you're transmitting data to and from. When you're, when you're sitting at the airport gate area, or airline lounge, or even your hotel room, those Wi-Fi networks aren't secure. Your bits are flying through the air, and whether you're checking your bank account balance, sending data to a client, or just checking your email, bad actors can snatch up your usernames, passwords, and everything else you send and receive if it's not encrypted. The layers of security used by ExpressVPN would take over a billion years to expose by bad guys with some of the most powerful supercomputers. ExpressVPN trusted server technology also runs each session in memory in a unique virtual space that is wiped clean as you end your session with none of your data ever written to a hard drive, so there's no residue for anyone to recover about what you were doing after the fact. ExpressVPN runs on almost all devices, including Windows, Mac, iOS, Linux, Android, streaming devices like Chromecast, Roku, Fire Stick, and Apple TV, and there's also a Chrome browser extension. It's super simple to use. Once you install ExpressVPN, it's one click to establish a secure encrypted tunnel with servers in 105 countries around the world. I've personally been paying for and using ExpressVPN for years on all of my personal devices. When I, started, when I first started using VPNs for work more than 20 years ago, they were often slow and unstable and had to be restarted frequently. But with ExpressVPN, data speeds are virtually unchanged from running fully exposed, so you can just turn the VPN on and leave it on. I often get materials from clients and companies that are, that are under embargo or NDA, and if it leaks out, I can get into some trouble. But even if I just wanted to reach back to my personal server to grab some files, check my email, or watch something that's only available on one of my streaming services at home while I'm out of the country, ExpressVPN lets me do it all securely. Your data is valuable. Don't let bad actors steal it and potentially misuse it. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash wheelbearings. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash wheelbearings. And you can get an extra three months free when you sign up. Expressvpn.com slash wheelbearings. And thanks to ExpressVPN for supporting wheelbearings. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. So we are up to episode number 23. Let's jump right in. We can talk about what we're driving. And I think you're having more fun than I had this week. Uh, so you are. Well, you know what? I'm not going to ruin it. 
Go ahead and tell us what you're driving, Sam. I have been driving since uh, last uh, Thursday morning the Fiat 124 Spider Abarth, uh, which is, um, I would say, uh, it's it's not unreasonable to call this uh, so far perhaps the ultimate expression of the Mazda Miata. Uh, you know, those are just, strong words because like those those two camps, like the Fiat and the Miata camp are kind of a little bit factionalized. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, for the most part, the 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 modern 124 that launched last year um, is effectively a Miata. Uh, it's built by Mazda in in Hiroshima, um, and uh, when when Fiat Chrysler and Mazda first got together and started talking about doing this project, it was originally intended to be a new Alpha Spider. Uh, so they were going to do an Alpha variant of the Miata with with an Italian engine in it. And um, Sergio Marchioni um, decided that he was not going to have any Alfa Romeos built outside of Italy. And the deal with Mazda was specifically that the car would be built in Japan um, alongside the Miatas. Uh, so they ultimately rebadged this as a Fiat and uh, gave it some some styling cues that are vaguely reminiscent of the old uh, 124 Spider that ran from the late 1960s until about the mid 1980s. Uh, but, you know, this is a, it's a very different car uh, and. You know, it it has all of the attributes that make people love Miatas. You know, it's fairly lightweight and nimble and and compact, um, but it's got the advantage of the engine uh, that's in this car. They they're using the uh, Fiat 1.4 liter turbo, multi air turbo, uh, which is the same engine that you'll find in the Fiat 500 Abarth. Uh, with uh, in the in the case of the Abarth version, that the standard version of the 124 gets uh, 160 horsepower and 184 foot pounds of torque, and if you get the Abarth, it has a different exhaust that gives you an extra four horsepower. Um, not really noticeable uh, from from what I've heard from others that have driven the standard version, uh, but it's it's plenty. And the the key difference there is the low end torque you get from this turbo engine versus the the naturally aspirated two liter that's in the Miata. Um, and well, and, that, and that's what people have always complained for the most part about Miatas is that they're, they're not overpowered. They're not underpowered. They're sort of like just right powered, you know, exactly. And, um, with the, with the power delivery too, with the turbo, I'm sure it's a lot different driving a Miata based car that has that low end torque that the, the turbo is going to have. Right. And, you know, at 164 horsepower, you know, by modern standards, this is by no means an overpowered car, you know, and 184 foot pounds of torque is, I think it's just right, you know, for a car that weighs just over 2,400 pounds. You know, I think it, it's, it's perfect. It's beautifully balanced. Um, you know, and it's just a hoot to drive, you know, from, from the outside, you know, it looks distinctly different from the Miata. Um, as I said, you know, it's got some, a few cues, you know, kind of in the, in the grill and the headlights of the old, um, 124 spiders, but, uh, the proportions are quite different from those old Fiat spiders. Uh, it's got a much longer hood, uh, to, to cab ratio. You know, the, the cab is set further back. It has, this one has more of the classic roadster proportions, uh, long hood, the cabin, you know, set towards the back of the car, um, 
and very similar to a Miata, but um, it's uh, the, because of the body work, it's got a little bit more overhang at the front and the rear. So it's, it's, it's actually about five inches longer, even though it's riding on the same wheelbase. Um, you know, it, so it's a, it's a little bit more um, muscular look to it. Uh, I'd say than than the Miata, the Mazda is, you know, perhaps a little more, um, I don't want to say delicate. I don't think that's quite the right that word was the for word it. I was thinking though, it, the Mazda is definitely, so I guess this is, this is sort of my question as we talk about it too, is do you think that they've successfully turned the Miata into a car that's reminiscent of, or at least just that can stand on its own? Um, you know, I, I, every now and then I'll, I'll look at the spider and I'll think, Oh, that looks really good. And then, <laughs> Other times I'll look at it and go, oh, they tried a little too hard for the retro. So uh, yeah, where do you come down? Uh, you know, it's it's grown on me over the past five days. Um, you know, I, I like it a, a lot more than I did before I got to drive it. Uh, and, you know, maybe maybe it's just, you know, the fun I'm having driving it has tainted my uh, opinion of the visuals. Um, you know, up until recently, you know, I always thought the Miata was the better looking car. Um, and I think it probably... To, it's probably still overall the better looking car, but I, I've I've grown to really like the Fiat version. Um, and you know, it's funny. Um, I, I was thinking as I started to noodle around with what I'm going to write for the review of this thing. You know, thinking back over the last um, uh, 25 years now, um, you know, from the late 1980s th- up through 2007, you know, just before the the crash, um, the financial crash. You know, Chrysler did this, did an incredible series of concept cars over, you know, the span of about, you know, almost 20 years. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and they, I remember and they those. did multiple concepts every year. And, you know, most of those never made it to production aside from the Viper and the, the Plymouth Prowler. Um, but uh, among those, you know, that string of concept cars, there were at least uh, three little Dodge sports cars, the Copperhead from, uh, I think 1997, the Razor from, um, 2002 and the Demon was the last one in 2007. And, you know, the, it's funny, you know, the, that Demon, you know, each, each one of those, you know, was a small two seat sports car, you know, very reminiscent of Miata, you know, clearly designed the, if they were if they were going to produce them, it's clearly you know directly aimed at the Miata customer, um, and you know especially the the Demon, you know. And if they if they had built the Demon, you know, it's funny that car with that name is like the antithesis of the car that was just introduced at the New York Auto Show with the same name. You know, it's a little two seat four cylinder sports car, um, and none of those cars that were meant to challenge the Miata ever made it to production until now you have a car from, you know, the, the successor company that is actually built by Mazda, you know, but well, using, were, yeah, using a Fiat powertrain. They're probably really smart to do that. I think what killed those earlier cars is the, well, I mean, I'm sure there's a variety of things, but uh, one of the difficulties with a car like that is just making the business case for it. And, you know, I mean, you saw GM try sort of the same thing with the the saturn sky and, and the solstice Pony, yeah. yeah Pontiac solstice and the whatever opal it was i think the opal was the speedster yeah um really neat looking car definitely plucked from the show circuit and put into production but 
but not well executed. No, I mean, it was it was definitely built to a cost. Um, it, it was a neat car, but it felt like a kit car. And uh, that's essentially what it was. Uh, and it was what impressed me the most about that was just sort of how they mashed a bunch of stuff from the parts bin together and made essentially this sort of like Neo C3 Corvette. But uh, I'm sure they lost money on every single one of them. And Chrysler doesn't never had the largesse of GM. So just to think that that would happen, uh, especially coming on the heels of something like the Prowler that I'm sure they sort of took a bath on. Yeah. Um, uh, that's just wasn't, wasn't going to be a thing. And it, it sucked because there was stuff like the, the, uh, the copperhead was just so neat. And the, you know, even the, the demon concept car, they were just, you'd love to have them. They would not have saved the company from any dire straits. You know, at that point, what they really needed were good, solid middle, you know, middle of the road products, um, and less debt and stuff, a whole lot of other business yeah. things. But, uh, yeah, they're certainly smart to tie up with, with Mazda, who's kind of happy to have a partner. I'm sure buying up some of their cars and, and Oh yeah, absolutely. Take, cost. take, you know, take some of the, uh, production capacity and you know get help uh, amortize the the tooling on on the other aspects of the car that aren't unique so yeah no it make, makes perfect sense for mazda to do it and you know they've made it you know from a design standpoint at least the exterior design they've made it distinct enough you know that you know it gives it gives customers two very distinct options you know the very very cars with very similar traits but two very distinct design options to choose from um, yeah, and, and they're priced almost identically. You know, they both start at twenty five thousand um, dollars, and the the uh, one twenty the Abarth that I'm driving is uh, just over thirty four delivered, but it's loaded with pretty much everything. Um, but it, you know, it, it's it's a fabulous little car. Doesn't I love this thing. The black hood though. It does so not. This one does not have the black hood. Right. So. Um, that's that's available as an option. So it's um, I've noticed that when people drive Fiat's like the 500 Abarth, they start, you know, speaking with the, like, you know, it's the Abarth. And it's so no, no, no it's not white. It's Bianco. <laughs> you know, they start. Blanco. Uh, yeah. Is it Blanco? In, yeah, it's in, an L, not an I. I thought it's Bianco in, in Italian. What do I know? I don't speak Italian. Um, <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm I'm not driving anything nearly as exotic. Uh, so what did you have this week? I've got the. GMC, I almost said Chevrolet. I got the, the, the GMC Canyon uh, Denali. Uh, this 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 truck presents a problem in my mind. Um, it's very much better. I like it a lot more than its direct competitor, which is the Tacoma. I, I it's just it's a nicer truck. It's smoother. It's feels more solid. It's quieter. Uh, it's just a nicer place to be, and it's more comfortable. Um, but it still has some of those shortcomings. You sit low to the, lower to the floor. Uh, it's a little bit cramped. It's not as space efficient as you might expect because on the outside, it's not exactly a compact pickup. I think it's about the size of a regular pickup from the 90s on the outside. It's they're not. They're yeah, not the, tiny the main anymore. the main difference is it's it's narrower than those trucks were. Yeah, that's so true. It's not it's not as wide. Do, do you have the crew cab or the, the regular semi-extended cab uh it's got four doors so i'm assuming that's the crew cab. okay let me let me pull up the uh the yeah, let's, let me ask could, could an actual human being sit in the back seat um or is it just a little 
jump seat, you know, about six inches wide. No, no, it's got seats, but okay. it's it's not. They're not so terribly the comfortable. Yeah. yeah. Um, even for you know my kids who are not that you know eleven and and nine, they're it's a little tight. Um, that's one of the issues. Is like. For the money, because it's, you know, the Denali starts at $40,000, starts at $39,000 something. Uh, this was optioned up to $44,000. And it, it's it's a nice truck, but for that price, you still have you know, seats that are like half power versus full power in front. Um, you're missing out on a few other uh, things like, you know, not all the windows are automatic down. Like these are these are weird sort of like feature complaints. But on the other hand, when you're paying that much for what's essentially a compact pickup. Like it should have everything. Mm-hmm. Um, How much did you say it was? 44. <sighs> yeah. And that's, I, that's with the 3.6 liter. Yes. Very. All of the truck stuff is, is great. It's really good to drive. Um, it feels really solid. It feels much more solid on the road than the last Tacoma I drove. Um, you know, so the, the frame is, is nice and rigid. The engine is very well behaved and smooth and quiet. Um, the transmission's very well matched to it. Uh, you know, all the controls are, are pretty good ergonomically. It's it's a, it's a good good vehicle to drive. The brakes do feel kind of weak. <laughs> I will notice. I will say that. And I noticed. Um, I don't know whether it's just the particular pads or the tires or the combination or, or what, but uh, felt like I should get more stopping <laughs> when <laughs> I stepped on this stopping pedal. Um, but it's just, you know, it, it gets... It gets about 23 miles to the gallon, which is just decent for for what it is. But, you know, again, you're spending forty four thousand dollars. You're spending big truck money on a small truck that doesn't really give you anything more in terms of efficiency. Uh, You know, you can get a full size pickup that gets almost that much efficiency. Uh, You know, certainly if you keep your your uh, foot out of the the engine and and you get one of the smaller powertrains in in the larger trucks or the the lower power you know more base model powertrains uh and you you know the bed's not all that big uh especially with the the four door um so it's not terribly useful and trucks are kind of like that anyway even even the full-size pickups they're kind of like that that promise that never really gets fulfilled right like they appear more useful than they actually are uh generally um you know, because like a pickup truck bed is what three yards, maybe two yards, something like that. Of of like if you were to get mulch or something, it, they're, it's just not that much. Yeah, like you know, typical six foot bed. I think you can get about two yards of of stuff in there. Yeah, so this is much smaller than that because um, it's not a full size truck. So right, yeah, because the the extended cab, you know, the the two you know the two different cabs, I think both ride on the same wheelbase. So when you go from the the shorter cab to the extended cab you end up with a lot less bed space. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a great, you know, sort of like occasional use truck in that sense. Um, But if you're going to buy an occasional use truck and you want something that's not giant and something that's relatively efficient um, and you could, could maybe serve as a second family car. This is a dumb one to buy. (laughs) The, The smart one to buy for less money is the Honda Ridgeline. It it will be bigger in every dimension, uh, probably just as capable in terms of what you can throw at it. I would expect that the Canyon will tow a little bit you know, with a little bit more authority. Well, especially if you get the Ridgeline. diesel. 
Yeah. If, if you get the, if you get the diesel Canyon, um, you know, then you get better fuel efficiency and <clears throat> considerably more towing capacity too, I think. Right. But what are you paying for that? Um, that diesel engine is a, is a, you know, again, that's a premium on top of something, you know, this is, and this is the Canyon Denali. So it's very nice, but it's also, it's, it's a premium vehicle. Um, yeah, it's just, it's the, the small truck thing. I really, I really wanted to be in the corner of the small truck. Cause I love the idea. It's a, it's a beautiful theory. It doesn't well, really you, you know, I mean, this, this, this exemplifies the argument that, you know, for example, Ford was making for years, you know, after they discontinued, when they discontinued the Ranger, you know, fans of the Ranger were saying, come on, we want a smaller pickup truck. You know, some of us don't want an F-150. And, you know, Ford was saying, you know, it, it costs us just as much to build a compact truck, you know, or, or a midsize truck as it does to build a full size truck, you know, and with all the stuff you need on there now, the safety equipment and everything else, it's really not noticeably cheaper to build or to sell. And, you know, doesn't really get significantly better fuel economy for the most part. Nope. And you end up sacrificing a lot of capability along the way, um, you know, in terms of, you know, whether it's, you know, bed space and payload capacity or towing. Yeah. You know, so for just a little bit more money, you get a lot more capability with the full size truck. And, you know, they they really stuck to that for the longest time until, you know, GM launched these the new Canyon in, in Colorado and you know they actually sold really well and then they finally you know ford finally said okay fine we'll build a new ranger for north america because they had you know they had the the global ranger that was sold in other parts of the world where they don't sell f-150s um but now they're bringing that back to north america as well yeah and you know again it's it's a wonderful theory and i'm sure that they're you know if you want a pickup truck that fits in your garage this will definitely fit in most garages and it's not it's not giant like the the full-size trucks have gotten very big um, but the flip side is, yeah, they, you can, you can walk into a dealership and get a very good deal on a Sierra or a Silverado. Uh, yeah. It may not be Denali trim, but it's, it's going to be nice for the same amount of money that you spend on a, a Canyon Denali. Uh, if you want the diesel in this, it's the, you know, the, the Duramax four cylinder and it's an extra three grand. So you end up spending 47 on on roughly the same truck that i've got it's 44 so it 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 will tow it'll tow then 7600 pounds but you know a truck that's towing 7600 pounds i'd be a little concerned about the brakes and stuff i don't know that it has the integrated uh trailer controller i you know and i'm saying my my concern already with the way the brakes felt Mm -hmm. uh i you know i mean if you're gonna tow 7600 pounds max you might might want to get a larger truck it's you know make sure you're better within its limits but um well uh, you know they they do have i think i'm pretty sure they have uh trailer sway control you know and automatic trailer brake um capability on here you know when you get the towing package oh so, yeah but it's that's what it is because i didn't see it in this one so and yeah often so have that stuff so right so you know the, i mean things like trailer sway control are pretty much standard now on all the at least on all the domestic pickups, um, you know, so that'll that'll make sure that the trailer stays behind you, um, you know, when when you're driving down the road, and then you know the uh, the trailer brake you know control is good for when you're going down hills, um, you know, when 
one one thing that you know you mentioned the uh, the pilot you know in a lot of ways the you know the the pilot is definitely i think a superior vehicle to this one you know you you've got more oh, the, room the, inside the ridge line or the pilot Sorry, the ridge line. Yeah, I mean, that's what I the same thing, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, the pilot, the, pilot amino. <laughs> yeah, the, the you know the the ridge line is you know it, it's got a lot of neat features. You know, and the fact that they built it off the pilot platform, you know, so it's not built off a traditional truck platform. You maybe you know you don't have the same max towing capability, um, but uh, you know you got a lot of other cool capabilities like there's the the trunk you know in the back end of the pilot be, or the ridgeline bed you know that's a lockable storage compartment behind the rear axle um that you can you can put tools and whatever else into um you know and it's it's a bigger roomier vehicle you know the nice cabin um you know it's it's going to be interesting to see how this midsize truck um segment plays out over the next few years you know once the new ranger arrives in a couple of years you know to see if to see if there's you know how long this momentum can last well and i think there's definitely a market for it there's people that want it uh but it's not it's not so much a practical decision you know if you're gonna if you're gonna get a truck that's sort of a weekend warrior truck is it's sort of like what i wrap my head around it like you commute in it during the week and then on a weekend you you use it for sort of the, you know, the suburban or exurban domestic tasks, you know, or maybe you put a plow on it in the winter and you, you use it to plow your driveway and stuff. Yeah. It'll, it'll do all that stuff. And, uh, it, it, if that's what you use it for, it's, it's probably decent enough. I'm not sure I'd want to plow with a ridgeline, although you can, we talked about that. <laughs> um, I don't think GMC doesn't offer um, something equivalent to the, the ZR2 package on the, on the Canyon, do they? I or the Colorado. I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. I didn't go delving too deeply into it. Um, this, that, this, the ZR2 package on the Colorado is pretty impressive uh, for, you know, for off-roading. I mean, if you like to go off-roading, you know, that is a truck that can, you know, can really handle the, the off-road and, you know, it's it's not it doesn't have the kind of power that you have in, say, you know, uh, Ford's Raptor, the F-150 Raptor. Yeah. Um, but it's also, you know, because it is narrower and smaller, um, it's actually a lot easier to maneuver, you know, if you're going rock crawling, you know, driving through some canyons and things like that. So, you know, it, and it's got um, these uh, really trick Multimatic shocks on there with remote reservoirs that you know these things are really impressive so that's definitely an application where where this truck wins <laughs> for sure um they're gonna get to the point of saturating the market with the the little trucks uh, yeah you know and you know right now you know you basically have you've got the the gms you know you got the uh the ranger coming in a couple of years and the you know the tacoma and then there's the um uh the the Toyota or the, the Nissan Frontier, which is, you know, about 100 years old. Uh, <laughs> it's still and, got, a, it's got a character. <laughs> it's got character. It may or may not get replaced one of these days with something a little more modern. Uh, but uh, yeah, that one's been around a while. Yeah. And, well, and, you know, the Tacoma just got sort of quasi redone. Uh, they spun it as an all new truck that was thoroughly revised it's not all new and it didn't necessarily have to be all new that truck has the ability to just outsell everything and have ridiculous resale on it as well 
Um, I, I I was not particularly impressed with the Tacoma when I drove it last summer, though. I have not been impressed with the Tacoma for about a decade. Um, it's just, you know, it feels, it feels overpriced, you know, all the materials inside feel cheap. It's loud. It's, it's uncomfortable. I don't like that Tacoma splay leg seating position. Uh, the engine was weak until the latest, you know, model year where it's gotten a lot better. Um, but still it's just, I, and the I don't suspension know. Tune, the suspension tuning on the TRD that I drove last year was pretty bad. Yeah. It's just, it's it's only sort of it's it's okay. It's definitely consistent. It's a Tacoma, and so maybe that's what that customer wants. But it's, it, I really I much much preferred uh, the GMC. I think you know if that's the kind of truck you're looking for and you don't want to get the crap beat out of you every time you drive it, <laughs> definitely look at the GM the the Canyon and the Colorado. Uh, they're they're comfy and smooth and quiet and all the things that the big GMC, you know, GMC trucks are. And that's, I, I like the GM trucks probably more than the, the Ram or the Ford. Um, and that, that holds with this too. If, if you had to choose between the Canyon and the Ridgeline, which would you take? Ridgeline for my life. Okay. The, the Ridgeline makes more sense. It's just, it's, it's more roomy. So I can get the kids and the dog in it. And you know, the, the bed is larger and I don't really tow and, so for, for what I would do, the Ridgeline is, is more sensible. Yeah. And I, you know, I think the Ridgeline will still, it'll still tow, I think 5,000 pounds. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, it's pretty reasonable. I mean, that's, you know, for a small boat, you know, it, it can handle that or a small, you know, smaller midsize trailer. It's fine with that. So. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's nice. It's nicely equipped inside and stuff. And, you know, it's going to come in a little cheaper than this. The problem is you're not going to get the sort of rebates and stuff because, Hondas don't have a problem selling, so that's right. Uh, so yeah, let's move on to some stuff. Okay. Uh, I threw just a couple of links in this week because we've got an interview that we can get to later on, um, which dovetails really nicely with uh, talking about the canyon and some questions that we got. Uh, but the first first thing I thought that uh, sort of popped up was Volkswagen has. Uh, sort of respun their advertising. They're really trying hard after their diesel scandal to make everybody forget that they were the, the company that made um, diesels that were way dirtier than they said they were. <laughs> and they're, they're coming out, you know, and Volkswagen is always, they're sort of like the Budweiser of car advertising, right? You know that they're going to do something clever. Um, and we, we saw the, the love bug ad, uh, which is how the family grows. And then building on that, uh, they just released another one that, that um, it, it really sort of tells a story uh, about a, a grandmother taking, I think her husband's ashes to the, to spread them like across the country to introduce the Atlas. Um, and, you know, being a marketing advertising guy, it caught my eye, caught my attention a little bit because so much car advertising is, you know, think about, think about what Dodge does. All they want to do is just be badasses. They just, like our cars are jerks. <laughs> you know, so powerful. Pretty much. Um, and and that, that kind of sells it short because they're, you know, that's not the only image that you want to portray because they're just, you know, they're they're decent enough. Vehicles. Yeah, I mean, you know that. Yeah, I mean, they are good vehicles, and you know, it it's you don't want to necessarily you don't want to typecast yourself in that way because that's, that's going to inherently limit your market, uh, your, your, your potential addressable market. And I think, you know, it's interesting what, what VW is doing here with this, this new series of ads, you know, really trying to 
appeal to the family. You know, and you know the the Atlas is probably the most important vehicle that Volkswagen uh, has perhaps ever introduced in the North American market, certainly in the last 20 years. Well, they're very late to the game too. So the Atlas is their, their, if I'm sure that nobody listening doesn't know, but it's their big three row crossover. It's really, it's built for the American market. I don't, I don't, I don't think they're really planning on selling too many of these in Europe and, and stuff like that. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's a, a vehicle that's tailored for, what people are buying now, they didn't really have anything other than, you know, maybe the Audi Q7. But that's again, it's not Volkswagen, it's Audi. Yeah, it's, it's a more, you know, it's a considerably more expensive, more premium vehicle. And even the even the Touareg, you know, which was their their midsize SUV, it was their it was their bigger SUV until the, the Atlas showed up, um, you know, was also a, a pretty expensive vehicle. You know, it was it was definitely um you know, a more premium priced, you know, it was priced more closer to what an Audi is and the Touareg is sticking around even with the Atlas and, you know, it's a little smaller in the Atlas, but it, it will be the upscale model to the Atlas, which is going to be the more mainstream family model. Can I admit that I forgot about the Touareg? <laughs> is that okay? <laughs> well, I think most people have at this point. Um, yeah. So I think they're doing with the, with the Atlas, what they did with the Passat and the Jetta, they sort of made specific ones for this market and they, they took some of the cost out. They're still, they're still good, but uh, I would expect to see the same sort of um, real price tailoring in the Atlas that I've seen in the, in the Passat and the, the Jetta again, not bad, just right for this market. Uh, and, and so to launch it, they're, they're not going after sort of the, you know, car car makers have also forgotten how to how to market, or they've they've lost their way because they're having this real struggle between who's actually buying the cars, uh, how to speak to the people that they want to be buying their cars eventually when they have money, maybe once their student debt is paid off in thirty five years. Uh, <laughs> um, so you know, there's there's always that you know a brand like Volkswagen with the, the say like the the Beetle, right? Uh, when they launched the new Beetle, it was about fun, and even you know back in the '90s, they were selling Jettas and Golfs with you know skis and bikes and stuff. They had the Jetta Track and the Golf K2 and all those things. Um, they they were they were lifestyle yeah. vehicles. Um, now I they don't, and especially with the Atlas, like you're selling it to. It's a family vehicle. So telling that all encompassing family story and sort of showing it, I, I think is it's an interesting turn on it. Um, and so it caught my eye and they've been playing the hell out of it. So I'm sure that it's been seen by a lot of a lot of folks as well. Um, and it's, it's I, w- just, I wouldn't know about that. I, I don't see ads. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, this, you know, the 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 midsize and, you know, to larger you know, three row SUV, you know, is the modern family car. You know, this, this is, this is the replacement for the classic, um, you know, Dodge Monaco, uh, you know, Ford country squire station wagons, you oh, know, those really big liked, family station wagons. I really liked the Monaco. One of my earliest memories is from uh nursery school. And it was one of those early seventies fuselage Chrysler wagons with the little jump seat in the back. And just mm-hmm. I remember the Plymouth emblem on the hubcap and I, did not know what it was, but it stood out. Was, yeah. Okay. That's my, yeah. That's I mean, you know, in, in, in high school, my, <laughs> my auto shop teacher had a 71 Monaco, a brown, dark brown one that we used to take for, you know, for runs to the, 
the scrapyard to uh, to buy parts um, for the cars we were working on. Did it have a, a 383, 440? Um, actually, it was a 318. 318. Oh, that's a lot of car for a 318. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very It struggled practical. going up hills. But, um, you know, getting back to, to the Atlas, you know, I mean, this this thing is sized, you know, right in the heart of, you know, the 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 big, the, the larger mainstream crossover class, you know, it's um, virtually the same size, you know, it's actually exactly the same length as an Explorer, as a Ford Explorer, and a couple inches shorter than the Chevy Traverse. Um, and the wheelbase falls in between those two, you know, so, I mean, this, this is, this should be ideally sized for what the American market wants right now, at least, you know, for family vehicles, since they, for, for, reasons that escape me, you know, seem to have this aversion to minivans these days. Um, so it, it, you know, they're, they've certainly sized it in the right segment and, you know, it's going to be built in Chattanooga, uh, you know, so because it's, it's primarily for the North American market, as you said, it's not, not for Europe. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this, this ad campaign plays out uh, to see if they really can start to attract um, some new kinds of customers into Volkswagen showrooms. Yeah. And it's just so interesting too, to watch how they're telling the story kind of a multifaceted way um, of, you know, this is the, a, they're, they're offering a long warranty on it, which is kind of, they're, they're using that as a selling point. Like, look, the whole family's going to be able to get through this thing before the warranty runs out. <laughs> that that's kind of an interesting point. And the, you know, just even the story about casting it, um, they're really trying hard to just take everybody's mind uh, you know, and, and or put everybody's mind on the story they, they want to tell um, where, you know, they walk the streets of New York and, and got a, a old Irish actress to, uh, <laughs> to, to play the part um, of the grandma. So, well, like you said, you know, the, this is the second in a series of ads they're doing, you know, the first one uh, came out a few months, a few weeks ago, um, you know, it was titled love bug, love bug, you know, and it, it's, it's kind of an ongoing narrative, you know, where love bug starts off with a young couple, you know, and shows the the growing family as they get some kids and they're, you know, growing up into larger and larger VWs. And, you know, it goes from a, from a beetle to a Jetta to a Tiguan, you know, and now, you know, you've got this extended family with grandma and, and, you know, the, the, the kids and the, and the couple, um, you know, all packed into this Atlas, you know, and I'll, yeah. I'll be curious to see what they do next. All listening to Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, what is it? America. That was that was yeah. the one sort of bad spot. It was enough. Uh, just enough with the. I don't know. I didn't like it. I didn't <laughs> like the music choice. So when it's my turn to do a, a VW ad, um, it's going to be different. <laughs> That's, I don't know. Uh, I think it's all we have to say about that one. We should just move on. Okay. Um, speaking about, you know, there's been a lot of, of talk uh, about ride hailing and uber uber in particular has been in the news i actually was um listening to freakonomics uh radio over the weekend their their show um and they had a i think it was just like an hour devoted to to uber um talking about because one of the uh guys from freakonomics uh steven levitt so not the not the main host, but but Levitt, the economist, was talking about how he had for years wanted to model a demand curve, and you, there's no such thing as a, a like a natural demand curve, I guess, out there. I'm not quite sure what a demand curve is because I'm not an economist. Um, but but Uber presented him the opportunity to to model uh, one directly, and 
they provided their data. And I'm just listening to this whole thing kind of skeptically, like, wow, this seems like almost a love letter to Uber in a lot of ways. They didn't really talk about the scandal that surrounds the company and, and how uh, if they're sort of shooting themselves in their own foot. Because at the core of what Uber does and what ride hailing does is, is there's this very natural turn toward uh, a new way of, you know, people getting rides and providing mobility. And there's all kinds of data because it's an app that's used that you can use to really fine tune. You can find where exactly the, the, the price should be. Um, They talked about that. Uh, I believe consumer surplus is like the amount of amount of money that you will spend on it, you know, to to find the breaking point so you can accurately price your, your thing to the market, which seems a little sketchy. Like, well, I mean, you know, there's, you know, basic, you know, economics 101, you know, you learn about supply and demand curves, you know, and the, the supply curve, you know, where, you know, prices on the, the, uh, um, or pr- prices on the Y axis and volume is on the, the X axis. And, you know, as the price goes up, you're going to have increasing supply. So supply is rising up to the right and, um, you know, demand starts high at low price, um, and, declines as you, you know, as you, uh, increase the price and, you know, where those two cross is what should be the ideal price point, you know, where supply exactly right. meets demand. And, and that's, it's, it's a dynamic thing too, though, right? Like, so that's, that's where surge pricing comes in. That's the feedback right. mechanism for Uber to try to match supply with demand. And when demand starts to outstrip supply, then they've got to, they've got to crank the price up to bring demand back down. Right. Right. You know, because, uh, you know, for, especially for products, you know, like say mobility services, you know, the, the natural demand, you know, is going to vary based on, you know, more than just price. You know, it's, you've got other factors like, you know, for example, weather conditions or traffic and, and other things. And so when, it's hard to come up with one pricing model that includes all of those. But if you, um, you know, the, what Uber did with the whole concept, you know, with the surge pricing, the dynamic pricing, um, you know, is try to match the price uh, to the, uh, you know, for both the, the supply, you know, from the, the supply of drivers to the, the demand as far as passengers go, you know, and get enough drive, you know, as, as the price goes up, you get more drivers coming in that increases the supply. And then, um, you know, as the, at the same time, the demand is going to come down, you know, and there's going to be a, hopefully a point where they, where they coincide. And that's, you know, that's where the price is going to be set. But, you know, what, um, I think, you know, what, where Uber, you know, perhaps went wrong with that, you know, with the, the surge pricing is, you know, I think they tried to, I think they got a little greedy, you know, as far as, don't how, say. as, as far <laughs> as how much they surged it, you know, and that pissed off a lot of people. Um, so, you know, you, you can you have to take that, you know, maybe a little more gradually, you know, but that, you know, in, in principle, you know, what Uber was trying to do was great you know and you know certainly the the taxi industry that they were disrupting you know certainly deserved to be disrupted there was no complaint you know i don't think anybody was going to complain about that except for the people that overpaid for taxi medallions in places like new york city and chicago and boston um, and boston <laughs> and you know we're you know, other big cities yeah. they're, they're all uh, very upset yeah well you know the the price of medallions in in new york for example has plummeted i think it's 
you know, they were going for a million dollars a piece, you know, just a, a few years ago. And now I think they're down close to 300,000. But this, you know, is, this so. is one of the points that you make. You did a post for Forbes and uh, while there's been successful disruption and they've certainly, you know, found a lot of consumer acceptance and, and uh, adoption, uh, you're not so keen on Uber, Lyft, DD, other ride hailing services actually uh, sticking around as a sustainable business model. Right. You know, because the the way that they have been able to grow their business so far is they've they've essentially been dumping um, the service. Right. You know, they, they've been offering the service to customers, you know, trying to draw in customers by offering the service at a price point that is below the cost of doing business. Um, and, you know, and when you when they talk about social networks, you know, there's you know, like Facebook and Twitter and so on. You know, there's this idea of the network effect. And, you know, for, uh, you know, for a social network to to really be viable, it needs to have enough people using it so that, you know, you can get you know enough of a community in there that that it, it becomes self-sustaining. Well, with um, services like uh, mobility services, like on-demand mobility services, the network effect is actually not with the users because, you know, with, with a social network, when you have once, once, once all your friends are on a social network, then it, there's a, a high switching cost if you want to go to a different social network, because now you have to try and convince all your your friends to come along with you. And if if they all like being on Facebook and they don't want to go to Google Plus, you know, then basically Google Plus is going to you know, is going to fail. Um, and with uh, mobility services, it's kind of the opposite. The The switching cost for the users is actually virtually zero. It you know, there's there's no. There's no impact to the user to switch from Uber to Lyft to get, you know, or to, you know, any any number of other services. You know, all you have to do is load the app and and away you go. Um, the where the where you need the network effect for those kinds of services is for the drivers. You have to have a sufficient pool of drivers so that the waiting time for the users when when somebody wants a ride is short enough that they're not going to make that switch. And um, in order to maintain that network of drivers that um, they've had, uh, these companies have had to pay them more than what it costs to run the service. And at the same time, charge fares to riders that are below the cost. And so that's why you get, you know, companies like Uber losing three billion dollars last year on revenues of, of I think, uh, somewhere between nine and ten billion. Um, so, I mean, they had huge losses even though they haven't had to actually spend any money on, on uh, any, you know, any, um, any vehicles or anything like that, all the, all the vehicles, the cost of the vehicles and fuel and maintaining those vehicles is all borne by the drivers. So, you know, it's, it's not really a sustainable business model. And then once, you know, they want to go to autonomous vehicles so they can get rid of the drivers, but then they have to start spending tens of billions of dollars a year buying or, or manufacturing and maintaining these vehicles. And it's, it's not clear that they're going to be positioned to make that transition. Whereas automakers that already have the infrastructure to build vehicles and service them and maintain them, uh, you know, they can easily add the kind of platform that uh, these mobility companies have. Well, yeah. And that's one of the things that I picked up on too, is that everybody's still very optimistic about autonomous vehicles 
solving things. You know, they talk about the the density on the roads where if these vehicles can follow each other very closely, you can get more cars in and because they all talk to each other and, you know, they're not the, the computers are driving, so they're not going to crash into each other. Right. Well, I think that's kind of high. You hope. You know, right. Well, I don't think that's 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 not realistic. Uh, there's going to be issues. Um, and it, it, to say that within the next five years, we're going to have, you know, basically road trains of self-driving cars that just follow each other real closely and you can read your paper while you ride along. I, I'm, I don't know, maybe in a, on a test basis, but I don't, I don't think that that's going to happen on a, a actual like large, large scale. Um, and with, so with Uber too, you know, they can lose money for, for a while cause they got about 65 billion just sitting around, but is there end game? Well, they actually, don't actually have that much cash. Well, that's they, they have that's a valuation their, of right, 60, valuation, sixty-five right. billion. But that's even true. that, even that, um, you know, is based on the the money that they've raised from their investors. But um, they've, uh, you know, there's also because they haven't gone public yet. You can't just go and buy shares of Uber, you know, like like any other public company. But there are secondary markets where some of the people that own shares in Uber, you know, whether they're investors or employees of the company can uh, buy and sell shares to other investors um, on a more limited basis. And there are recent reports that um, the price of those shares is now indicating a valuation closer to about $50 billion, you know, in, in uh, recent weeks compared to, 65, uh, which is what it was, you know, towards the end of 2016. So it's dropped quite precipitously because of all these scandals. It's still absurd. Oh, yeah. And I think I think it's going to go down much, much further before, you know, before it bottoms out. And, you know, I think what's what's going to ultimately end up happening is at some point it's going to drop low enough that, um, you know, somebody, some automaker is going to step in and buy up Uber um, you know, to, to get what, you know, get the platform, you know, and, and take over their, um, the brand equity that they have, even, you know, even assuming it hasn't been so severely tainted at that point that, uh, nobody wants to use it anymore. Well, that's, I mean, that's the, the sort of plus and the minus of it, right? They, they've built a good product. They have seen wide adoption. Um, they have good people working very hard, figuring out a lot of, things about what's going on but they also have this really seamy underbelly um that's that's just uh seems to go off in all directions you know with just no end to these terrible stories either so uh you know there's there's that good and bad side of of uber so either they'll you know eventually they'll they'll just sort of wither and die or they'll they will get bought up i'm i'm not sure which is which but um, you know, ride hailing. Yeah, it'll, it'll probably get acquired by somebody eventually. Yeah, I mean, ride hailing on its own, I think, is going to look very different in a few years. Um, yeah, well, it, you know, it's going to be. Uh, you know, you, you talked about um, you know have, having you know autonomous on demand uh, ride hailing. You know, and interesting last week, um, Waymo announced the launch of their um, early rider program, and uh, they're doing they're going to start it in Phoenix. Uh, using their fleet of Chrysler Pacificas that they built, um, and uh, right now they have a hundred of those uh, that are on the streets, and they've done a deal with uh, with Fiat Chrysler to do another uh, to uh, assemble another three hundred um, to add to their fleet, 
uh, and so what they're what they're doing is they're they're now starting. You know, they've been doing development on the the core technology of driving, you know, self driving vehicles, and now they're moving on to the development of their ride hailing platform, their mobility platform, and so people can register to participate in this um, in Phoenix to start with, but I'm sure they'll probably add a couple more cities, uh, probably, uh, Austin and, and maybe Portland, uh, or, or maybe San Francisco, um, over the next few months as they start to gain some experience with this and get more vehicles on the road. Um, but you know, you'll be able to summon the vehicle using an app, um, uh, and, you know, have it take you anywhere you want to go. Yeah, places with perfect weather and uh, roads that are in good shape are not going to have a problem. They're going to see this stuff. And that's, you know, I mean, that's that's why, you know, even, you know, when you hear companies, uh, you know, talking about launching their autonomous vehicles in 2020, 2021, it's going to be very limited uh, deployments, you know, and, you know, only in places where they where they can control the, you know, or they, where, where they can have a high degree of confidence that the conditions will will work well for these vehicles. And I, you know what? That's, that's fine. I mean, you go, you move where the food is, right? So if that's what, what it takes, um, that's what's going to happen. Um, another thing you wrote up recently for Forbes was that uh, Delphi is looking to spin off as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I was actually out in, in Silicon Valley last week for a couple of days. Um, and, uh, while I was out there, you know, Delphi had their, their first quarter financial results. And at the same time, they announced that, yeah, they're going to spin off their powertrain systems business unit, which is like one of the last of their old school businesses, you know, from when they got split off from GM in the late 90s. Um, you know, their, their powertrain unit, uh, you know, which makes things like fuel injection systems and alternators and all kinds of other components for engines um you know is a quite a profitable business and it's still a very large business but they're going to split that off into a separate company and retain just the the autonomous driving and electrical systems and electric electric um electrical architecture units as the their core business going forward why would they do that um i think you know they they see the writing on the wall um that you know, the, the stuff from in the powertrain unit, uh, you know, it's all for internal combustion engines. And while it's still a good business today, um, you know, it's not a business that's going to see a whole lot of growth, you know, over the next 10, 20 years. Um, and it's eventually going to start to decline. You know, I mean, overall vehicle sales, you know, are pr probably pretty close to their peak uh, globally, if not at their peak already. Well, that, yeah, um, their uh, sales numbers recently have been discouraging. Yeah, well, certainly here in North America, I mean, they're still growing in China and and some other markets, but um, you know, overall sales are are going to start to flatten out globally in the next few years, um, and then start to go into a decline. And um, you know, as as you get more and more electric vehicles on the road the demand for the kinds of products that the powertrain systems unit makes are, is, is going to also eventually start to decline. So, you know, now is a good time as any to spin that off as a separate business. It's still a very profitable business and will be for the foreseeable future. It's just not a business with a lot of growth potential. Um, and the, the business that remains 
On the other hand, you know, things like, you know, communications and vehicle networking and autonomous systems, that's a business that's actually got a lot of growth potential. And that's what the stock market likes. So you're going to see, you're probably going to see the value of that part of the company increase pretty, pretty significantly over the next few years. Um, and, uh, you know, potentially even be acquired by somebody like, oh, say Intel. But is there any there there? You know, like that's if everybody rushes to fill that that void, um, you, you wind up, you know, maybe at a certain point now it's it's highly valued. But, you know, once you get too many players in there, then naturally you've got to thin the herd, too. So are they sort of running headlong to their own death? Um, well, spinning not, off their buggy whip, you know, like, n- uh, well, not necessarily because, you know, they're, they're not spinning off, you know, everything that is highly profitable. You know, like, you know, one of the parts that's staying in that, that business unit is their electrical architecture business. So things like wiring harnesses and yeah. vehicle networks, all of that is staying in the, with that core business and, you know, wiring harnesses are, you know, I mean, that it doesn't matter if you're using, um, you know, electrons or gasoline or diesel to power your car, the vehicle still needs a wiring harness. Um, and, you know, as as vehicles get more sophisticated, those wiring harnesses also become more sophisticated. And as you start to transition into things like um, Ethernet networks in the vehicle instead of CAN networks, um, you know, there's there's a lot of potential for growth there for new business there. So. Even even if autonomy takes a long time to come to fruition, there's still a lot of other pieces in that part of the company that um, have a lot of have, probably have more growth potential than the powertrain systems unit. Yeah. Well, you know, at a certain point, they got to again, like you were talking about the uh, autonomous of uh, the, uh, the right handed companies, right? They got to adapt or die. So absolutely. And that's what they're doing. They're trying to adapt. So speaking of uh, of Delphi, um, I guess it's kind of related. I did an interview this week because uh, not too long ago I had a uh, GMC. Well, I guess it was a Chevy Silverado HD. Um, it was about well, a month ago, I think, yeah. wasn't it? So it, it, I think so. Um, and it had the new Duramax diesel in it. And uh, I was very impressed with that engine. To it's just smooth. It lights off instantly. Uh, it's obviously super powerful because there's no diesel. That's just not crushingly powerful now. Uh, so I, um, managed to get a little time on the phone with, uh, I'm going to mangle his name. I know it. Uh, it's Nicola. It's, it's an Italian name. Cause so, uh, they actually developed the engine in, uh, Europe, um, where there's a lot more, I guess, diesel expertise, but so it's Nicola Menarini. Uh, I think I did okay. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I spoke with him for about 20 minutes about how they developed the, uh, the not only the 6.6 Duramax, but just de- how GM's doing diesel uh, at the moment, uh, especially at a time when other automakers have, have kind of just stopped to catch their breath. Uh, GM doesn't seem to be all that worried that diesel's going to have a, a problem going forward. And so they're, they're introducing so- so they did development of that big diesel V8 um, at, at their uh, uh, Turin yeah. uh, engineering center. Yes. I didn't know that. I, I thought they were only doing the smaller diesels over there. No. So one of the interesting things he pointed out was that uh, while you can swap out the engine, uh, you know, so you've got like the 2.8 right in the um, 
the smaller trucks. You've got the big 6.6. You've got the diesel and the cruise. Uh, the command and control, is, the system that runs the engine mm-hmm. is, is the same. Same basic system. The software obviously changes, but they developed uh, that system in-house. You can scale it up to however many cylinders you've got yeah. in, the, in the vehicle. Yeah, and they're not buying it from someone. You know, like in the past, uh, you know, GM has, has partnered with, with other companies. And, and you know, the, uh, obviously, you know, you've got Ford that was tied up with Navistar for a while. And um, you've got, what is it, Cummins still over at, uh, at Ram? Uh, yeah, they, well, they, yeah, they use the Cummins, um, six cylinder and the, the big Ram HDs. And then, uh, they VM, use a, the VM, Motori. the VM Motori and the, uh, the 1500s. Uh, but, and then Nissan uses the Cummins, uh, diesel V8 and the, uh, Titan. Right. And that was supposed to be a Ram engine at some point, right? I, I yeah. It was originally intent targeted for uh, Ram. They were going to use that in the, uh, in the 1500. But the you know the the six point six Duramax is actually a really interesting engine. Uh, it's it's you know four valves per cylinder, which I didn't realize. Still with a pushrod valve train. So it's anyway. Let, let's cover it all in the interview. Let's <laughs> okay. the interview, and then uh, we can come back and we will answer a question. Uh, we had at least one question, so uh, yeah, listen to that now, and then we'll come back. Yeah, good to go. The first thing we should do is just uh, make sure I have your name and title, Nicola. What exactly it is you do there in, in Torino? Yeah, I am. Uh, my name is Nicola Menarini. I'm uh, working uh, part of uh, the GM uh, GPS, Global Propulsion System uh, Diesel uh, team. And in Torino, it's uh, our home room for diesel development. And uh, I am the Global Chief Engineer and Program Manager for uh, the Duramax, appointed as of November 17, and uh, of the XLDE, which is the engine that we have on the missile track in the U.S. and many other countries in the world, and in the U.S. on the G-Van, on the Chevy and the GMC van. And you have... So that's my job. And you have deep diesel experience. I was looking through your, uh, your CV. Uh, you know, you go back uh, quite a ways with VM Motori, and so... Uh, it seems like a natural fit, uh, for the new Duramax. And that's what I wanted to talk about is, uh, the new 2017 6.6 liter, uh, Duramax that is available in the, the, the trucks this year. Um, because I recently drove a Silverado 2500 HD with the engine and I was very impressed with it. Uh, even if you don't know much about diesels or, or engines in general, uh, I thought the engine was noticeably better than the previous Duramax diesel. Um, so let's so let's start at the beginning, I guess. It's pretty much an all-new engine. Um, why did it have to be redesigned so thoroughly? Well, um, first of all, very happy to hear that uh, you drove it and uh, that you found uh, the improvement that we all have been working to achieve. So that's good. Um, we, we, we basically... I mean, in an evolution of an engine, which is a lifetime uh, normally above 10 years, there are big appointments and small appointments. There's never the final engine until it's replaced for something else. And the 17 was a big appointment. There are, during the evolution, during the life of an engine, you have continuous upgrades, changing improvements, and sometimes they are big. And this is the case for our 17 engine. Our 17 engine was 
developed to combine uh, features to really move ahead compared to what we had uh, until 16. And we combined, uh, as I hope you experienced, improvement in overall performance, which is torque and power, it's NVH, and also looking to the future and to the present, um, I would say upgrading the engine for emission compliance uh, and uh, current emission compliance and be ready with the hardware for future emission compliance. So as a combination, we took this big step to do the 17. You may have seen uh, it's still a V8 of a, the same displacement, but we have a lot of new components, a lot of new parts, of course, have been developed to achieve all these results. So we have new crankshafts, new piston, uh, much reinforced block, cylinder head to improve breathing and emission performance, a totally new injection system. And in addition to that, a component which is not installed on the engine, but in the heart of the engine, is the control unit. So we now have in all the uh, Silverado and Sierra vehicles with the Duramax, a controller, an ECM, control module, which is designed by GM, developed by GM, and we do have the ownership of both the hardware and software. This is key for our strategy. We own the software, we know what we do, we know what we tell to the engine to do. It's completely developed in General Motors, good portion in Torino, some portion in the in the U.S. for the diesel control portion. So it, it was really a combination of hardware, software, and uh, and this is why we say we have this product that looks similar to what we had before, but in terms of performance and, and uh, in general performance that can be detected by the customer, power torque, MBH, and other performances, which is emission compliance, which are mandatory, which are legal requirements, it's a real step forward. Yeah, certainly from a driving perspective, the, the torque and horsepower and NVH are all uh, noticeably better. Um, is, is, it a, uh, is it a new development to have the controller developed in-house? Would you previously be working with uh, another partner to develop the software and the control system? It, it was a strategic decision uh, inside the GM uh, long ago to really become uh, uh, independent and uh, being able to create uh, um, the brain of our engines inside. Uh, traditionally, and not many uh, vehicle manufacturers that have diesel engines with uh, totally uh, integrated and uh, de uh, developed by homeroom. They use uh, um, controllers that you can buy from a, a partner, a, a supplier. We took this decision long ago, and as of today, all all the diesel engines that GM is uh, producing and selling around the world have a controller which is uh, uh, developed by GM people. It gives us a lot of flexibility, a lot of knowledge, a lot of control on uh, on what we do uh, on all our and synergy as well. Because, for example, um, 
if you look to what's available in the U.S., for example, now you, you have seen for sure the cruise is launched with the diesel engine mm-hmm. and the Colorado, Colorado Canyon are available as of a little more than a year ago, a year and a half. They use exactly the same control unit with different calibration, but exactly the same unit. So we are achieving synergy as well. Hmm. So you get some of that uh, economy of scale. You, you put the work in and use it across the line. That's uh... Yes. It's economy of scale in, uh, economy of scale in hardware, meaning that uh, we multiply economy of scale because we buy many of same, exactly the same controller and economy of scale of developing the functions, which are common and uh, differently calibrated, of course, but common. Uh, across uh, the diesel engines and diesel vehicle range. Hmm. Um, and so, how did you, how did you and the team set goals uh, for this new uh, Duramax? Did you pick the torque or fuel efficiency numbers that you wanted, and then work to to meet them, or was it a case of keeping up with or or outdoing the competition, or all of those? <laughs> Okay, provided that I'm joining the team recently, but of course I had an extended discussion with with the team. It's a combination of everything, okay? (laughs) Because we, it's a combination. You have to keep up with competition. Uh, We're basically pretty close to competition, to be honest. There's there's the numbers, the the difference in numbers that not even justify any difference in performance. We're all about the same, okay, very much in general. And, and, and I'm not sure how long the, 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 the race to power and torque will, will, uh, will go on, uh, but of course we felt that uh, a, a need, there was a need of uh, an upgrade to the engine. The, the power increase is nearly 50 horsepower, which is significant on an engine like this, the torque even more. Uh, <clears throat> so they were targeted uh, the beginning of the of the program a few years ago, and, and then achieved. Uh, well, the, re- the results uh, are uh, certainly pleasing from a from a user perspective. How how difficult was it to to achieve those results that you have? It, it, it was extremely difficult. Uh, we cannot deny that that it was uh, the development was not uh, nice and smooth. We had a few hiccups. Uh, during the development, uh, they were, uh, say, fixed uh, quickly on time uh, in order to uh, not, uh, say, l- losing time, uh, but it was extremely challenging on all aspects. Uh, uh, is there... Mechanic. Oh, okay, go ahead. go ahead. No, I mean, uh, it's mechanically challenging. It is... Uh, the, the MVH was particularly... Uh, particularly challenging. We have several acoustic pads here and there in the engine to make it uh, make it uh, quieter than the predecessor. Um, it, it, it went okay, but it required a lot of a 724 kind of approach from uh, most of the team members. Sure, sure. Yeah, and certainly with the diesel, uh, and especially with modern injection systems that just make a lot of noise, um, the the ability to bring that noise down, you know, just reading about you know, the, the two-piece oil pan uh, that had to be created to to damp some of the vibration and resonance and and all of the other uh, measures that had to be taken on the top of the engine. Um, would you would you say that NVH was the most difficult uh, 
issue to solve or, or is there anything in particular uh, that, that really, you know, you had to work extra hard to, to achieve or to, to fix as you were developing the engine? Uh, I would say VH was an example. It was particularly the uh, critical the development also of the maximum power. Uh, the maximum power end with this, this level. Of maximum power is not a problem. The problem is guaranteeing a full durability <laughs> and reliability at this level of power. You can do power very easily. And combining with uh, emission performance. NVH was particularly difficult. As I told you, the, the Duramax is, the 17 Duramax was an, a big appointment. But we have others that are coming. So um, <laughs> this is not, not, the, not, the end of the, not the end of the Duramax development. Sure. There are many, many interesting things that are. Uh, coming uh, in the next model years. Not, not big steps as uh, you experienced on 17, but, you know, we call it the continuous improvement, and this is what we, we are doing. Sure, sure. They, well, they build on each other. Um, and, you know, one of the most noticeable things uh, to me was how quickly this engine starts. It seems like a, a small thing, but, um, you know, diesels, even modern ones, you generally have that slight delay, uh, to heat the glow plugs, especially if it's uh, you know a cold start in a in a low temperature, um, I didn't notice that uh, with this engine. It started very quickly, even in the cold. Um, uh, how did you manage that, especially with the limited capacity of a, a 12 volt electrical system? You know, if it's, I'm sure it's easier to get the glow plug system working better uh, if we were to go to you know a 48 volt system that's coming but not here yet. There is a trick, and it's very, very, very simple to explain, I would say. All the diesels that GM is uh, offering in potentially cold markets, even if the global warming is helping a little bit, <laughs> uh, is uh, we use ceramic glow plugs. And the ceramic glow plugs can achieve a higher tip temperature if I remember correctly, we're in the area of 1,200 degrees C uh, in just one second or so. And so we basically have shortened up uh, the glowing time to almost nothing. And the startability, the quality of the start is also very good. Uh, are more expensive, much more delicate because we handle ceramics. So, you know what? If a teacup is falling on the ground, <laughs> ceramic made is broken. So we have to handle very properly, but the, 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 the performance is great. And we have it also on the cruise and on the Mitchell truck. There's the, the economy of scale again. Um, and, you know, I also didn't realize it. it's a four valve per cylinder engine, but it's, it's still pushrod based with its valve train. Why was that just because of the, the, basic architecture you were working with, you were starting with, you know, why not an overhead cam uh, design? That, that's a great question. And as an engineer, uh, one would like, uh, uh, of course, uh, a four cam engine as an aviate configuration because it uh, looks like it's the most modern uh, technology, etc. But we really didn't find a, a justification to drastically review uh, even the valve train system, which works very, very well. And so we have improved what we have rather than um, 
tearing apart all the engine design, even in the well uh, train area. It's true, we have a push rod, push rod engine with a single cam in the middle of the V, and, and, uh, and still also um, <coughs> mechanical uh, uh, tappets. However, what we are, uh, have done is to ensure that we do not have a deterioration or a change in the valve lash during the engine expected lifetime. So um, not necessarily this will stay uh, for uh, a far future. We recognize that uh, we could, uh, it's something we are potentially thinking for a far future, not in the next uh, month, I would say. <laughs> uh, but frankly speaking, uh, the changes, uh, we, we prioritized the changes in the 17 to what was really needed uh, in order to improve the engine, improve the engine performance. And, and the, the combustion system that we have today with this system is really good. Sure, sure. Um, and of course, it is. Uh, uh, if you look to the uh, smoke emission of the engine, uh, clearly we do have the DPF, so there's no visible smoke at all, ever. But assuming you remove the DPF, the engine has no smoke also. Because the raw emission, the raw soot emission, is really is really low, and, and so it's okay. And we decided to keep it as is. Well, and and certainly for packaging, uh, the the push rod is is an elegant um, solution. And uh, you know, it's it's I'm I'm assuming it's that engineering decision making, the balance. You know, there's there's more friction with the push rod valve train, uh, but. It's not an engine that, you know, because it's a diesel, it's not doing high RPM. And I noticed the actual uh, layout. I was looking at the, the cutaway illustration by Dave Kimball. Um, the, the geometry, the push rods, are, they're, they're all in a line. It's, it's pretty standard to, to what we've expected. It's not something like the, the old um, the Chrysler Hemi with the, you know, the, the push rods that operate backwards and, and things like that. So it's, it's still very elegant packaging. Yeah. First of all, I'd like. To, it's true that uh, that the, the the friction could be improved, but we have uh, tappets with uh, use a roller, so we have no sliding contact. We have a, a rolling contact, and um, we had also to overcome the the uh, to ensure that uh, we do not have 32 rods, but only into brackets 16. It's very um, very clever. It's, I, I, I was impressed. I, I want to see that on a gasoline V8. <laughs> well, yeah, the gasoline V8, as you correctly said, uh, probably to take care of higher uh, RPM, and then, then the push rod may be a little bit more questionable. But, you know, we, we have a, a 3,000 max uh, power RPM, and then uh, what we have is really, is really okay. Plus... Um, I mean, as I told you, we, we've been able to avoid any uh, lash adjustment for the engine lifetime. It would be very uh, difficult to do under a bonnet of a Silverado or, or sure. Uh, Sierra. Sure. So, um, and, and so uh, staying with the, we'll stay with the top end of the engine for my my, my next question. Uh, yeah. The, the cylinder yeah. heads themselves, they're, they're aluminum alloy, uh, which I was also surprised by. You know, that's, again, that's common for gasoline engines, but is that still rare for a diesel? No, it's completely common. Oh, it is? No, okay. 
in the automotive uh, in the automotive field uh, anywhere there's no diesel with cast iron head anymore none okay so that's They're all aluminum <laughs> and uh, the, the trick even here the trick is uh, controlling the way the coolant is cooling uh, the aluminum and ensuring that you have a proper coolant flow into the critical areas you have to ensure that uh, the, the the breathing uh, um, i mean when you when you switch off the engine you have to also to ensure that we have natural siphon circulation of the coolant so that we don't have a vapor trapped into cylinder head, which, which could uh, create an unexpected temperature increase. So, and of course, the, the structural design uh, of the cylinder heads. But aluminum is very common. You have to select uh, the right uh, alloy because there are aluminum is a lot. <laughs> there are many variants. There are some that are specifically developed for a high-performance automotive engines, and they perform very well. The cast iron, uh, the cast iron cylinder head is, in theory, stronger, but at the end of the day, with much less heat transfer capacity. Oh, so, so it's actually less efficient. Pros and, pros and cons. Yeah. Um, so uh, my last question that I wanted to, to sort of cover is, is kind of a big one, um, but. Okay. <laughs> you know, why make such an investment in diesel? Uh, you know, obviously a lot of time went into developing the new engine, and it's it's certainly not uh, cheap to build or, or to buy, for that matter. Um, I know, you know, being a global automaker, diesel in other markets is, is more popular than it is in the, the North American market. Um, but is the demand of heavy-duty uh, pickups with diesel strong enough to, to justify it? Um, and again, with the emissions uh, systems that need to be on it too, and, and the, the increased scrutiny now uh, because of what happened with Volkswagen and, and uh, you know the emissions there, um, it, it seems like it's a it's a tough spot, you know. And, and I, I could easily see an automaker saying, you know what, we don't want to we don't want to get involved in that. That's a, that's a mess. Um, so so why well, why invest so heavily? When the game gets tough. <laughs> And you give me the second portion of the answer of, of this uh, short phrase. Uh, he, play. Sure. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> okay, so yes, we have a demand. Yes, our customers like the Duramax, like the torque, like uh, the towing capability and exhaust braking feature going downhill for the big uh, towers. Uh, we have a demand which is not uh, going down for sure, eventually the opposite, and uh, we know what to do. Uh, the scrutiny, great. The more the scrutiny is, the better it is. We, we, we have not been, we have not been uh, hit by anything severe like others. Um, we have uh, SGM, as you certainly know, the complete transparency with CARB and EPA, we disclose everything to them, even before the scandal. GM was disclosing everything we do on the engines and asking uh, um, opinions, support, uh, etc. So we are, uh, I mean, we are okay. We went through the certification. Actually, the, the Colorado Canyon was was the next vehicle after the VW scandal, which was knocking at the door of, EP, of uh, EPA in an arbor. And they opened the door and said, ah, you want a certified diesel? Come, let me see. And <laughs> it was okay. Yeah, well, it was okay. And especially and, if you're designing the engine to, um, 
to have a, even without DPF to have low low smoke and soot emissions. Um, you know, that just reduces its its need for refills of DPF. So it actually, you know, I can see that that approach being, uh, you know, try to get it as clean as possible yeah. and then add the the SCR, the catalytic re yeah. reduction and everything onto it. So um, there are. Uh there are new trends in the automotive world in the US and, and anywhere else. But the diesel is, uh, I think you heard recently our, our VP, that Nicholson, saying the diesel is still the most efficient way to transform the energy into the fuel into work. And mm -hmm. That's, we cannot deny it. So if we have a race against producing CO2, the diesel is a solution. We need to continue developing the, the way we control the emission, not much of the smoke, but the NOx, which we uh, control efficiently with VSCR, with the death injection. And so there's a future, we believe, for the diesel. There's a future of all the powertrain, the uh, propulsion systems has to find the right application. And in this case, on the full strength track, we see that the customer like it and we want to continue enhancing it to, to have uh, customers even more happy in the future. Yeah, well, certainly my week with it was great. I kept looking for things to tow and I, I, didn't, I didn't actually find any, um, but I was, I was a little disappointed because it uh, certainly is a very uh, capable truck, very powerful, very refined. So... Um, you know, thank you very much for for taking some time to to speak with me um, about the the new engine, and I look forward to seeing more diesels from GM in the future. Sure, thank you very much for this interview. I was very glad to attend, and maybe we can talk again in future. Absolutely. You want. Anytime you want to talk engines, you give me. You have my number. You give me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll find a way. Yeah, because they, they originally designed the 6.6 um, with Isuzu. Really? Yeah, the, they uh, they developed that engine uh, with Isuzu uh, like back in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s. I think really and, the, the only thing left on that engine that was from the original design was like the block and the bore spacing. Yeah. Well, they, um, the plant where they make those in, in uh, Dayton was originally a joint venture with Isuzu. It was like D-Max Incorporated. Um, so it was a, a GM-Isuzu joint venture. And then um, when, you know, they started to pull away from Isuzu, you know, GM eventually took over that whole joint venture and it became a GM, uh, full GM subsidiary. And then, uh, so I, I didn't realize that they had moved some of the engineering of that over to Italy. Yeah, well, I think that's where the that you know that's where the talent is. Um, uh, Nicola has a lot of uh, background. He actually worked for VM Motori for a, for a span of years as well. So you know, you, you go where the talent is, um, and that's you know that's the benefit of being a global automaker. And you know, actually, that that facility is one of the things that GM is keeping, even after they uh, sell off uh, Opel and Vauxhall to PSA. Well, good. <laughs> they, can, they can make more cool engines it's a neat engine uh i was looking at the dave kimball uh who's you who, he's a really famous artist he does all the cutaways um and so he drew he drew a cutaway of, of the the new duramax and it's just a cool drawing to look at just to look yeah at I've, I've got one of his cutaways uh, here on my wall in my office of the um 
the uh, LS9, uh, the ZR1 engine from uh, oh, yeah. 2007. Yeah. yeah. I actually uh, I actually met him um, a few weeks ago at Cars and Coffee here in uh, in Birmingham. And um, he's uh, he, he lives in Texas, but he's up here for for a couple of months uh, working on a project um, for an unnamed automaker. I was going to say, which he can probably not talk about. <laughs> no. Um, I just, I remember when the, wow, what year was it? 90, was it 94? When the LT1 came out in 93? I forget. Yeah, something, yeah, I think it was, yeah, it was 93 or 94. Uh, that was when I became aware of his, like, him as an artist and just because he did a, a cutaway of the the lt1 and i think it was a big fold out that was in um carcraft or something and i just i remember staring at it going wow that's really neat um how do you draw like that uh, <laughs> very distinctive style um yeah but yeah so we had a we had a question actually yeah so um Slawamir, um wrote to wrote in uh to ask about uh, diesel particulate filters um and uh you know, the particulate filter is the thing on modern diesel engines that has eliminated eliminated uh, the smoke that used to be characteristic of uh, of all diesel engines, uh, which, you know, that, that's that black smoke, that thick black smoke is actually particulate matter. It's, it's little chunks of um, it's not actually unburned fuel. Um, it's part part of the combustion process on a diesel engine. Um produces a particulate matter and you, you can get some in a gasoline engine as well uh, but it's usually smaller diameter particles but what he what our uh, listener asked about was is the uh, the dpf kind of cheating in diesel cars as far as i know dpf is collecting and accumulating some debris which cannot be burned in the engine and later on burning all those deposits with the help of some additional fuel so this helps to clean all those fumes leaving these exhaust pipe at least during the time between the two, the two cleanings uh, or in other words between two regens of the dpf uh, but during ongoing regen and cleaning of dpf the exhaust fumes seem not to be so really clean aren't they uh, so is this some kind of cheating because not all the, uh, not all the time are exhaust fumes clear and nice as they may show. Um, so, um, the, the way that the particulate filter works, um, is it's actually got a ceramic core, um, inside the, the filter that's porous and the exhaust and there's a catalyst on there and the exhaust fumes as they, uh, from the diesel engine, as they flow through the particulate filter, it, uh, the, this core, captures um the particles which on modern diesel engines are typically somewhere between uh two and a half and ten microns in diameter so they're, they're pretty small but when you have a lot of them it, it you know makes that black soot that you get that you associate with diesels and so the the filter captures these and over time it uh eventually gets filled up and it can't capture anymore. And so what happens at that point is it has to go through a regeneration phase. And the the particulate matter is, like I say, is actually a, a, a byproduct of the diesel combustion process or actually any um, hydrocarbon fuel combustion process. You get some degree of particulate matter produced. Um, and so uh, it's... Uh, its chemical composition is actually something different. So what happens is uh, the particulate filter is typically sized for, so that it needs uh, regeneration about every five or 600 miles. Uh, and when that happens, 
the engine switches to from its normal uh, leaner combustion uh, cycle to a richer air fuel mixture. And so what happens is now when you get extra fuel going through the uh, the particulate filter, you know, that, that un unburned fuel coming from the engine going through the particulate filter, you get um, a new kind of reaction that's taking place with the catalyst and the particulate filter that then converts the particulates um, into um, much smaller particulates. <laughs> well, yeah, but, well, smaller particulates, but it also converts some of it to CO2 and to um, see and to um, NOx. Uh, water and, and some of some of it to NOx, uh, but mostly CO2 and, and water uh, is that's the, right. the so byproduct. Diesels have there. much lower NOx, right? That's their CO2. That's the problem. Uh, no, it's, it's, the, the, other it's the other way around. They have lower CO2 uh, and uh, more NOx um, production. And the, the NOx typically happens at higher combustion temperatures. So, you know, what they've tried to do with modern diesels is keep the combustion temperatures down um, to minimize the NOx. And then they use uh, exhaust after treatment as well, which is where diesel, where uh, Volkswagen got into trouble. It was the problem there was not with the particulates. Their problem was with the NOx because they decided to use a NOx trap to capture the NOx and again, do a similar kind of conversion. You know, it's a, it's basically a catalytic converter, um, but it wasn't capturing. It, it didn't have enough capacity to capture as much NOx as it was supposed to. Uh, so the particulate filter, um, it, you know, when it's doing its regeneration cycle, what happens is you get a little bit higher fuel consumption for a short period of time. But as far as we know, it's not actually cheating. Um, you know, they're to the to the best of our knowledge. And we, we've seen no evidence that anybody is actually um done any any sort of nefarious stuff with the way they're controlling the air fuel mixture um you know, and you know the thing is with the with the particulate filter um if they were cheating you would know it you know with nox because it's you know colorless and odorless um you can't tell when it when the engine's producing too much nox you can tell if the particulate filter is not doing its job because you'll see that black soot uh that black sooty smoke so as I said, as far as we know, nobody's been cheating with the DPF. And in fact, the particulate filters are now starting to uh, migrate over to some modern gasoline engines because one of the one of the byproducts of uh, direct injected engines is you do get extra particulate emissions during uh, right during cold start. Right. Uh, because you're spraying fuel directly into the cold cylinder and some of it, you know, um, when it hits the cold cylinder walls, uh, you know, it it um, liquefies again. And uh, then you, you do get some particulate, some extra particulate emissions. That's, that's and, what they light off the catalytic converter with. Right. Like that's it's. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, well, you can't really, you, yeah. You can't really light off the catalytic converter with the particulates. You know, that's oh, just no, with, the, with the raw fuel. I mean, they doesn't it run a yeah. little bridge to light off the cat. And, and then, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a little more complicated than that. You just, uh, you know, you but, have to go into all the nuance. I'm trying to oversimplify, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. Um, Starting uh, starting this year, um, some manufacturers are starting to put particulate filters on their gasoline direct injected engines. Uh, Mercedes is doing it on some of their new engines this year. And there's some new emission standards that are being phased in in Europe this year and then uh, from 2018 here in North America. And that's that's why um, 
you know, there's two two different approaches that manufacturers are taking to that. To that, one is uh, with with direct injected engines. One is using the particulate filters, and then the other approach is what Ford is doing, uh, where they're using dual fuel injection, where they're pu- putting uh, port fuel injection and direct injection on the engines. And so, in the phases where the DI is likely to produce more uh, more particulates, they're actually using more of the port fuel injection at that stage. Um, and, uh, so that's helping them to control their particulates. Yeah. Well, that was one of the issues with the HTCI engines too, right? Was the, the transient knocks, um, under certain mm-hmm. conditions, which just they, it would get too high, much higher than a regular gasoline engine. So yeah, it, it can do that. Wonder if that's going to be the key to actually seeing that stuff on the road. One of the keys. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we'll ever see uh hcci engines although manufacturers are still working on them they they might show up eventually they're so cool oh i know it's a it's a neat idea uh that and rotary engines they're just which they're <laughs> just really hard to control yeah also really hard to control yeah um, well the rotary engines are are easier to control um you know and especially if you do it in an application like what mazda recently patented for a range extender for an ev um where you can run it you know basically constant speed and and what they, you know, in their patent, what they did was they, uh, um, they can monitor, they can using now using a, a crank position sensor, they can, they know where the rotors are. And so they can, when they shut it off, they can stop it. Uh, so it actually blocks off the ports. Um, so mm-hmm. um, you can get basically the whole thing runs cleaner and more efficiently that way. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see if they actually do produce that uh, for those kinds of applications. That's, I mean, it's just such a super neat engine. And it's so compact, too. So much power and sort of a compact. That sounds great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> definitely not as fuel efficient as you might think. But maybe at a constant no. speed and a, as a range extender. Fine. Yeah, with, with, with direct injection, you know, in that kind of application, you know, then it could do some interesting things with it. Yeah, I guess they're used a lot in, um, or they have been in, in stuff like pumps and, and things like that. Just not not automotive applications, but just. Yeah. Other uses because they are so lightweight and, and uh, generally powerful for their size. So. Right. You know, and that that's why they're appealing um, as a range extender for an EV, because it, it's so small. You know, you know I mean, imagine, um, you know, for a car like the Volt, you know, instead of having a one point five liter four cylinder engine. I mean, you know, you know, you know how big that is, you know, roughly, you know, two feet long, you know, 18, you know, 18 to two. 24 inches long. Um, you know, now you could replace that with a little, um, rotary engine, you know, that's, you know, maybe the size of, uh, you know, a, a medium sized watermelon, you know, to do the same thing, have the same kind of power output, you know, but running at constant speed, you know, just to turn a generator, you know, and then cycling it on and off. And that could actually be a very interesting application. I I would like to see a Volt with a Wankel in it because it would just sound neat. Yeah. <laughs> well, a couple of back in the like around 2008, 2009, a couple of different companies built prototypes. Um, I think uh, FEV and, and AVL both had those are both um, automotive engineering companies. They they work with a lot of different uh, car makers. Um, they're you know doing uh, as engineering consultants. They both of those companies built prototype. Uh, vehicles with um, Wankel range extenders. Oh, that's so cool. 
Yeah. Someday that and turbines and just anything, anything different. <laughs> I, I like the different. Uh, well, I think we've done a podcast. I think so too. Excellent. Uh, well, so that's uh, episode 23. We'll catch everybody soon for uh, number 24. All righty. Talk to you later. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.